0: In Southern New Jersey, close to the Jersey shore and at the edge of the Pine Barrens, AJM Packaging Corporation, a paper packaging manufacturer, turns out paper plates around the clock in three shifts. In May, 2016, a worker operating a cutting machine lifted a scrap chute in order to clear a jam a practice that was prohibited by AJM's rules. The chute quickly fell back into place, partially amputating one of his fingers. We'll discuss OSHA's use of the lockout tagout standard in this case, and whether the employer should have known about this practice on this June 15 episode of the OSHA 3030. Welcome to the 3030. I'm Manish Rath and I'm a partner at the law firm Keller and Heckman right here in Washington, DC. I've represented employers in the field of OSHA law for almost all of my 26 years of practice. This is a program that we do about every 30 days. We try and cover in 30 minutes, a developmental issue in the field of occupational safety and health law. And I'm joined today by my colleague and friend, Taylor Johnson. I'm very fortunate to have him aboard on today's episode. Taylor, thank you for joining us today on the OSHA 3030.
1: It's a pleasure to be here as always, March.
0: Well, Taylor, as you know, I think we, we've got a great topic. Uh, perhaps we should start by telling everyone what we're gonna cover today.
1: Sure, first we'll go through the factual background in this case. Uh, next, we'll discuss OSHA's burden to prove uh, that th- that an employer has constructive knowledge. We will define reasonable diligence and the factors that courts will look at when determining if an employer has exercised reasonable diligence. And finally, we'll wrap it up with practical takeaway action items for you to bring back to your workplace.
0: And remember, this is a recorded program so that we can rebroadcast it as a podcast on your favorite podcast app, and it's also housed uh, the video and sounds together are housed as a video on YouTube, as well as on our website, khlaw.com. So after we're done today, we will turn off the recordings and go into a session we call Off the Record, which is just for the participants of the live webinar today. So with that said, let's get into it. As I said, AGM Packaging turns out thousands of paper plates across three shifts per day. At its facility in Vineland, New Jersey, it operates 33 cutting machines down two rows. These machines made by Peerless are called Peerless Cutting Machines or PCMs. A blank, a large piece of paper, is inserted into the machine and the machine cuts five paper plate blanks. The rest of the rectangular sheet is scrap. The scrap drops down a short distance into the machine's scrap chute. An air nozzle shoots a burst of forced air to blow the scrap through an opening into a scrap bin below. Every so often, scrap will jam and will need to be cleared by the adjuster who is operating the machine.
1: The scrap chute that you just mentioned, Manish, it's a piece of solid steel. Uh, It's about five feet long and it weighs about 30 pounds. So it's possible to pivot the scrap chute upward by hand, but this would require either reaching through a guard or through an opening uh, below the rear access doors in order to do so. So once raised into an upright position, however, an adjuster has access to clear the paper jams.
0: Right. And that's not the right way to do it. It is a possible workaround way of doing it that is, according to AJM, an improper way to do it. The right way is to clear paper jams from underneath.
1: Right. And while the chute is raised, nothing secures it in this upright position. It's just balancing upright.
0: And so in May of 2016, an employee suffered an amputation injury while clearing a paper jam on one of the facility's machines by using this improper method, by pivoting the scrap chute up. Taylor, you said it's balancing up there and he reaches in to clear the chute. And uh, while he's doing so, the chute falls right back down and partially amputates one finger.
1: Right, and OSHA inspected the facility and issued a one item, for instance, repeat uh, citation, uh, alleging a violation of a provision of the lockout tackout standard. And there's four basic elements uh, that OSHA must establish when trying to prove a violation of the lockout tagout standard. And the first is that OSHA must establish that the lockout standard applies to the practice in question.
0: And OSHA debated that, but the review commission didn't see that as as being much room for debate. You have a a raised chute and it has this potential energy, gravity fed potential energy. And so they, they believed that the standard applied. The second element that OSHA would need to establish of the four prima facie elements is required to show is OSHA has to introduce evidence that the employer failed to comply with the lockout standards requirements.
1: That's right. Third is that the agency cannot establish a violation of the standard if no employees were exposed to the allegedly violative condition.
0: Finally, And what became the focus of the Review Commission's opinion in this case, the agency has to show that the employer knew of the allegedly violative practice, raising a shoot in this case, or through the reasonable exercise of diligence, should have known about the allegedly violative practice. So those are the four elements uh, that OSHA would need to prove, and the Review Commission evaluated at least focused its, its opinion on one critical element, and that was this last one, knowledge, or should have known about the allegedly violative practice.
1: That's right, and, Yeah, As you mentioned, they affirmed the administrative law judge's finding that the cited standard applied. Um, so the key question that remained was this constructive knowledge question. And again, OSHA must prove that with the exercise of reasonable diligence, uh, that's a key term here, uh, the employer should have known about the allegedly violative practice.
0: Yeah, Taylor, just to be clear for everyone, uh, if if OSHA had evidence that the supervisor actually knew that there was a violated practice, we would call that actual knowledge. And if the agency cannot prove actual knowledge, but can show that, hey, if an, an employer generally or generically could have detected a violative practice had they exercised a reasonable degree of diligence, they would have picked up on this. That is a attempt to prove constructive knowledge. And here this case it would have and many cases that you and I handle when we defend against social citations, they center around constructive knowledge with perhaps a greater frequency than they center around proof of actual knowledge. So let's get into that then. This idea of constructive knowledge goes in large parts to the question of whether the employer exercised reasonable a reasonable degree of diligence. And OSHA can show that by examining five critical activities that a reasonably diligent employer would have engaged in. The idea that they would have conducted a hazard assessment and properly anticipated a hazard, that on that basis, they would implement a work rule to manage the hazard, that they would train employees on the work rule. Then once everyone's been trained up on the work rule and expected to go forth and engage in work practices that are compliant with the work rule, the employer can't just put the rule back up on the shelf. The employer is expected to continually supervise and monitor employees to make sure that they did it right. And then finally, that if they see any violations, that they enforce their work rules. Those are the ingredients in this concept of reasonable diligence. We're going to talk about these each in turn. So it starts with with a work rule.
1: That's right, Manish. And the judge in this case, you know, looked at whether an employer had implemented a work rule that was sort of the the, the first step in the analysis of of reasonable diligence.
0: These decisions that that the review commissioner will look at uh, they turn on whether the employer first conducted a hazard assessment.
1: That's right. It's not enough to just have a work rule and train employees either. A a judge will examine evidence as to whether the employer took steps to monitor for compliance uh, on an ongoing basis.
0: And once there's that evidence that there was indeed a work rule, uh, a judge will evaluate whether the employer trained employees uh, on the work rule. And the evidence I've said many times on the show, it will also turn on maybe evidence that that particular employee who got injured had engaged in the training, whether there are any omissions in the training whether the content was sufficient. But the other thing I've mentioned several times is I like to see training programs that have evidence of how the employer measured comprehension of the training, like a test or demonstration. So when you look at the training program for its sufficiency, any evidence, uh, as you mentioned just now, Taylor, that the employer trained on the rule, but didn't enforce the rule would serve as evidence in favor of the agency that, that maybe there wasn't an exercise of reasonable diligence. So they'll look for evidence of of enforcement as well, which brings us to the the work rule itself. In this particular case, the review commission examined whether or not AJM had a work rule.
1: Right. This is one of the first steps in the analysis. And AJM had a clear written policy. Employees were trained to go under the machine to clear a jam with the scrap chute in place. And the policy specifically stated to all adjusters, never, never in all caps, raise the scrap chute to clear a jam. This chute acts as a guard when clearing out jams from under the machine. This is part of our safety operating procedures and is strictly enforced. And so the review commission reviewed this written rule and found AJM's work rule fulfills the lockout tagout requirements because it prohibited employees from engaging in the activity that triggered the need for the lockout tagout procedures.
0: Right. And they noted that even though the rule explains that one reason why it expressly says never raise the scrap chute is that it exposes employees to the cutting edges of the machine. Nevertheless, it was very clear that you should never raise the scrap chute. And so if one of the other hazards was that the scrap chute could fall back down, it shouldn't matter. Employees were nevertheless very clearly prohibited under the written standard operating procedures. So that was helpful evidence for AJM that they did indeed have a work rule. The next issue that the review commission examined was the one we've, we've just discussed training. The review commission examined whether in this particular case, the employer had sufficiently trained employees on the work rule. And what they found looking at the evidence from the administrative law judge is that AJM had engaged in efforts to communicate and to train employees on its policy that Taylor, you just mentioned. And that those efforts were clear and that they were direct. And AJM uh, had trained employees, uh, not only had they trained 27 employees, but they had specifically trained the injured employee, and they had signed acknowledgement forms from all of those employees, including the one employee who was injured. Interestingly, Taylor, there was a case in 2015, so a year before this employee got injured, they had a case where another employee had gotten injured in a similar manner, and it was that instance that had caused AJM to conduct another hazard assessment and formulate this rule and then conduct training. So the training itself and the rule were an artifact of the one instance prior to this where something similar had occurred. What's also interesting about it is, and Taylor, you you were the one who pointed this out to me, in in the 2015 case that had happened a year earlier, the employee who was injured in the 2016 case was called to testify. And one of the questions asked of him was, were you trained on how to do this right? And did you understand your training? And he testified, yes, I I was aware of the rule and I understood the rule. So his testimonial evidence in 2015 was introduced in his case for his incident, which occurred in 2016, to demonstrate that he indeed had received training and understood the rule.
1: So the next element uh, that the commission looked at is whether or not supervision was adequate. And the commission examined whether the employer adequately supervised the shop floor uh, specifically for violations. And this is really where the decision gets interesting, Ranish. The production supervisors, the commission found that they spent the majority of their time on the production floor and that four out of the five of the machine adjusters actually testified that they raised the scrap chute.
0: Yeah, so that's evidence when you look at them in conjunction, it looks like evidence that, well, if the production supervisors are on the floor most of the time, and five machine adjusters were asked to testify, and four of them said, yeah, from time to time we do raise the scrap chute, that seems to be evidence that maybe a supervisor should have picked up on that, should have caught it. But they testified that they would raise the chute for maybe just once, twice, or at most three times a day. It didn't happen a lot. And they gave testimony that when they did raise the scrap chute to clear jam, it was only up for like a minute.
1: Right. And that's what the adjusters testified to. But eight current supervisors um, and then one current adjuster also testified that they never lifted the chute to clear jam.
0: Right. And they testified that they had never seen anyone else raise a scrap chute to clear jam either. So these four adjusters are claiming that they would maybe three times a day at most for no more than a minute raise the chute. But the other adjuster and all eight supervisors said, I've never done it. I've never seen anyone else do it. And so now you have a a conflict of uh, testimony, which is interesting.
1: That's right. And and the review commission looked at this conflicting evidence and found both sides to be believable. Uh, Therefore, it found that OSHA had not met its burden to present evidence uh, that a raised scrap shoot would have been readily apparent uh, to any supervisor walking the production floor. The commission found OSHA failed to establish that AJM's continuous safety monitoring by multiple supervisors uh, was in this case inadequate.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of other facts that went into it. For example, when supervisors walked the floor They testified, you know, the difference between being upright and in this normal position, which is at a 45 degree raised angle, is very subtle. And you can only see with all these heavy machines, you can only see about five feet in front of you. And, you know, there's indicator lights, but they're only facing the operator when they're operating the machine. They're not facing a supervisor who's walking the concourse in between the two rows of machines. And so there's just a lot of evidence about. Sure, there may have been a shoot raised for a minute and I might not have seen it. It would be reasonable that I wouldn't have seen it. I wouldn't have caught it, especially if it was only for a minute and it happened maybe once per shift. Even if it was three times per day, it might have happened once per shift. So interesting that the review commission said in in the face of conflicting credible evidence that suggested that OSHA, who had the preponderant the burden to show by a preponderance of evidence, constructive knowledge had failed to do so.
1: So the the next element uh, that the commission looked at was anticipation of hazards. And AJM supervisors believed uh, that employees had no need to raise the scrap chute to clear paper jams.
0: Right. And in addition, AJM had specifically prohibited the practice in its written policy and then trained on it. So it it rendered credible their supervisor's testimony that they didn't expect that there was any reason to raise the scrap chute.
1: Exactly, and, and the Review Commission found, after after listening to this evidence, uh, that the Secretary failed to prove that there was a widespread practice of raising the scrap chute to clear paper jams. And so yeah, I was and, going to
0: point out that widespread is not a requirement, but right. it, it renders it more likely that reasonable diligence would have caught it.
1: Exactly, yeah. And the Commission also found that AJM had no reason to anticipate that workers would violate the work rule that it put in place um, the, that we discussed a few slides earlier.
0: In addition to all of this evidence, AJM also put on sufficient evidence that it had ha- it did have a progressive discipline policy for enforcing violations if it had caught any of them. Indeed, Taylor, they had recorded 88 documented cases of disciplinary violations.
1: Exactly. They had progressive dis- disciplinary pres- uh, policy for these violations. And you know OSHA tried to argue that verbal warnings uh, were actually evidence of a failure to discipline. But the review commission disagreed, saying that verbal warnings, warnings can form uh, a part of a progressive discipline policy.
0: Right. And OSHA also tried to show that the specifically injured employee in this case was not disciplined until after OSHA had conducted an inspection. The review commission looked at that and said, well, he was disciplined within 11 days of the incident and 11 days after a violation or alleged violation would not be excessively late and not evidence of a failure to discipline. The agency had pointed to another case where the review commission had said, late disciplinary action constitutes something akin to not enforcing. But in that case, it was 18 months later Uh, Whereas in this case, it was just 11 days later.
1: That's right. And the commission found AJM's extensive documentation of disciplinary actions. They found that it supported the conclusion that the secretary failed to prove uh, that AJM did not enforce its work rule. And the commission found that the secretary failed to prove that AJM's disciplinary program was inadequate or ineffective.
0: So as a consequence, the review commission upheld the administrative law judge's decision to vacate the citation which I think makes for a very important case for employers, particularly uh, because it turns on the question of employer knowledge. And it turns on the question of what uh, exercises the employer engaged in to qualify as reasonable diligence. On that basis, Taylor, I think we can come up with a pretty good list of takeaway items for our members of the OSHA 3030 community to walk away from this program with. What should they do in in light of this decision?
1: Sure. So the first thing is establish work rules uh, to prevent reoccurring injuries. Uh, you saw AJM do this in this case and certainly helped them uh, when the court was, re- was reviewing the facts. Um, in fact, they established a work rule, as, as we mentioned earlier, directly after uh, an incident that was similar. So they responded to that incident, established a clear work rule, and it certainly bode well for them in this case.
0: That's right. And the other thing that might trigger the creation of a work rule is a hazard assessment. The next thing I'd say is once you have a work rule, it's important to train employees in clear and understandable ways and to document the fact that the training occurred. And as I've said before, to document the method by which you have assured the employer that the employee comprehends the training. Written tests are good. Demonstration tests with a recorded note that they were observed demonstrating it performing the task correctly is even better.
1: That's a great point, Manish. And and, uh, third here, supervisors should spend the majority of time observing and monitoring workers. Again, the commission notes that in this case, uh, the the AJM supervisors did spend the majority of their time on the production floor uh, where the incident occurred, Um, and it's certainly a good takeaway uh, for the employer community.
0: Yeah, and I think it's uh, there's other areas of law, like wage hour, where supervisors spending more than half their time supervising is a reasonable expectation, given the title. But we don't mean that any individual supervisor here has to spend the majority of their time uh, observing and monitoring, but... It was helpful that the majority of the time that adjusters were on the shop floor, they they were being monitored and supervised, not just for workplace safety, but for work quality and a host of other reasons, but that workplace safety was a part of the exercise. The next thing I'd say is it's important to regularly review and update safety and health policies and procedures, as you pointed out, Taylor, based on uh, the development of new experience based on new injury and illness data coming in or
1: even near misses. Right. And finally, um, you know, as we've said many times, it's very important to document all disciplinary measures. You know, OSHA at one point had argued that because the warnings were, were verbal, that it wasn't enough of, uh, you know, in terms of AGM showing that they had a, a disciplinary uh, process in place. But these verbal warnings were backed up. They were documented and recorded. And so that certainly you know, was, it was a great thing that AGM was able to show in this case. That they had documented all of their disciplinary measures.
0: Right. And they also pointed out that there's nothing wrong with coaching and counseling. I'd like to see it recorded as well, because that's corrective. So it need not result in a specific disciplinary measure or punitive measure. Uh, There are some companies that say, if there's any violation that relates to lockout, tagout, it will immediately result in severe discipline. Or some companies even say, if it's lockout, tagout, it will result in immediate termination. So companies run the gamut. But in this particular case, it's helpful to know that the review commission found that even coaching and counseling and a record of that, was helpful in demonstrating a practice of monitoring and enforcement. So that's the last thing I think that we can suggest for employers as a consequence of the AJM packaging case. Important case, great case. It's also, as I've said on a number of occasions before, it's impressive that the Review Commission is still turning out helpful decisions and moving the stocket along despite only having two commissioners, each from uh, nominated from opposing parties. That's really commendable, and it's a testament to both of our current commissioners that they're able to work together to find common ground on on some fraction of their caseload in order to keep the docket moving. So so another um, case that uh, that testifies to that, that um, commendable quality. Uh, that's it for today's OSHA 3030. Thank you all for attending. Remember to stick around if you want to stick around for the off the record. We'll also take a look at the question and answer tab up top to see if you have any questions about this or any other area of OSHA law. Remember that the entire library of all of our past, we're, we're now at around 100, episode 105 or 106, and that all of our prior episodes are housed on our website, khlaw.com, OSHA 3030. And uh, so, so check them out. There's a lot of helpful information there. This episode, as well as many of our prior episodes for the past several years, is available as a podcast. So please remember to, to check out and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast streaming app and to like or rate the program when you do. So that it is more easily found by by your uh, colleagues. Remember that we're also on LinkedIn and please reach out LinkedIn to us and and check out the video as well on YouTube if you ever miss an episode. Our next episode of the OSHA 3030 is going to take place at 1 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday, July 20th, 2022 always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern. So, so we've got a few weeks until we come back again on a, another topic that I'm sure is going to be an excellent topic. Don't forget our sister programs, the Tosca 3030, Reach 3030, and FIFRA 3030. Tuscan 30, 3030 and Reach 3030 are coming back to us on July 13th and August 10th, respectively. Check out our website for more details. Taylor, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. And I'd like to thank all of you in the OSHA 3030 community for joining us on this episode. We look forward to seeing you again in another month. And until we see you again, stay safe.